My name is Sophie. I suffered from fibromyalgia and extreme fatigue syndrome for about 24 years. Today I'm fully healthy. And now I would like to pass on everything I've learned about health and healing and more to support those who are still on a journey. And this is why I create this documentary series and podcast, The Puzzle of Healing. everyone today I'm here with Anna Detari and she is a very fascinating human being with loads of degrees and loads of interests and that's why I let her introduce herself because I surely would get it wrong. <laughs> Hi Anna! Hi! <laughs> so tell me what are you all doing? <laughs> what are the degrees and how did it all come about? <laughs> so originally I'm a professional musician so that was my life that was my thing I am playing the flute I've been playing music since I was like five years old but flute was my ultimate love so I did two degrees uh, from flute performance one of them is like a teaching degree and a chamber music degree and the other one is a master's in flute performance and um, so I thought that I finished studying at that point and I just went on <laughs> with my life um, performing um, tons of contemporary music, but also performing in orchestras. I used to work in the opera theater, um, National Opera Theater uh, in Budapest in Hungary, uh, that's my hometown, for four years. And, uh, and then at some point I encountered some very serious problems with my playing. And as a result, I'm pretty sure we're going to talk tons about that. But as a result, I uh, I ended up in London doing another degree in performance science, which is a music psychology, performance science thing, um, a one year master's. And I went on doing my PhD in music psychology, which I'm doing right now. So that's the, <laughs> that's the story. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, I have to say, I'm really excited to record this episode because as you all know, this is a channel about health and healing. And this is a chronicle illness we're going to talk about I've never heard before. But there is so much interesting wisdom in it beyond that condition itself that I'm really excited to talk to Anna about it. So, <laughs> What type of flute are you actually playing? It's the classical, um, you know, um, fair flute, <laughs> the way you would know it. <laughs> Um, and my particular instrument is a Japanese master instrument, a handmade one. Uh, he's my love. We've been together for a long time. Oh. And when I first got it, uh, it was love, love at the first play, I guess. <laughs> so, so, and um, I've been playing, yeah, I've been playing him because it's a him. Uh, I've been playing him for like 16 years now. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Long lasting relationship. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think I'm just pretty much committed to him. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to change. So this, so. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so do you want to tell us what happened? What got you into the science and into your PhD? What's the reason? Yeah, so um, I was in the sort of peak of my career. I was 28 years old. I've been performing all over the place, uh, mostly solo recitals and small chamber music, mostly contemporary playing, working with young composers, performing their music, which is kind of a stressful situation when they like compose the music and you get the music you're first one to perform it. And usually there is a very short time when you can like prepare yourself. And then um, at one point, um, I was doing two concerts um, in the festival, like it's in in the big festival, um, 
both of them contemporary, both of them saw recitals. And on my second recital, I started feeling that something was wrong with my lips. Like, it didn't really work the way it, it should work. Um, some notes didn't really speak the way I wanted them to. I felt tension. It was just the whole thing was just like weird. So I decided that maybe I just need, need a rest. I need a break. I've been practicing. I've been playing so much. I just need a break. I'm just like exhausted. And I went on a family holiday um, and I didn't touch my flute for about a week, week and a half. And I came back and I started like um, preparing for my concerts in the fall. So I opened my flute case, I picked my flute up and I tried to play and my lips simply didn't do what they were supposed to do and I couldn't make a sound at all. So what happened? What did your lips do? So basically what happened is that when you play the flute, you have to have a sort of like stretch on the side and that stretch didn't happen. So basically I, when I tried to play, my lips ended up in a sort of like a whistling position, like something like that. Mm -hmm. So this kind of stretch on the side didn't happen. And for a longest period of time, I thought that something was wrong on, on the top because this is like very visible that you try to play and something is happening here. And I tried to fix this and figure out what was going on here. But essentially what happened later on, I figured out that these muscles became completely uh, like um, uh, not responsive uh, to the signals coming from my brain. So these were not pulling on the side and as a result, this top part couldn't smooth out. It was trying, it was nothing wrong with, wrong here. It just wasn't pulled in the right position by the side mm -hmm. of my lips. So I just kept trying and ending like this. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was just like, first of all, it's just like unbelievable. So this is not happening. At that point, I'd been playing the flute for 16 years. I, there were periods in my life when I practiced six, seven, eight hours per day. I did two degrees, tons of concerts, had worked a lot. It just, that was like second nature to me playing the flute. It's like, this is not happening. And I, I put it away. I tried the next day, same thing happened. Tried the next day, same thing happened. And after a couple of weeks, I was sort of forced to, to realize that this is how things are now. And I started um, canceling my concerts one by one. And that was a very like tough period because I always kept the shortest time before the concert. I could like still cancel it because like mm -hmm. in the hope that I might be able to do it. I might be able to do the next one. There is that one in November. I might be able to do it. I'm going to fix this by November. I'm going to fix this by December. And I couldn't. And um, I was obviously deeply depressed, very anxious and... Um, well, not in a good place in general. Oh. And so looking back, like the first like one year was the longest period. <laughs> like it was just every single day just like crawled and it, it felt so slow. And I tried everything. I forced it. I was standing in front of the room. I had joined. I tried this. I tried that. I had no idea what was going on. And I was ill a lot that year. So I had uh, pneumonia three times. Mm -hmm. I had constant fever, every single bug, every single flu, everything. I got it. I spent the first year because I was just so depressed. My immune system was so low that I caught everything. And um, that went on for about two years, I guess. And, um, and when did you figure out what it is or was? When when did that come? And maybe maybe we should probably first quickly explain what this 
condition is called so that the audience know what we're talking about. Yeah, so the condition is called Musician's Focal Dystonia and um, or Musician's Cramp for short. For people who heard about writer's cramp, which is slightly more known, or the yips, it's a very similar condition. Yips is the sports dystonia, so it happens with baseball players or golfers who are unable to throw a ball. Writer's cramp happens basically with anyone who like, uses writing continuously in their work. Um, and basically some small part of the body, a small group of muscles, just simply refuse to do what they practiced and what they're supposed to do to, to, to do a small action. So basically the fine motor movement is impaired and there is nothing wrong with the muscles. There is nothing wrong with the nerve conductance. There is nothing wrong with the body physically. Everything happens up in the brain and the condition is completely unexplained. Um, the medical community has tried to explain for years and there is no like one reliable explanation. This is what's happening. So it's like basically shooting in the dark and mm. it's also incurable. Medically speaking, it's incurable. So this is what it is. Um, and yeah, so it took me four years to figure it out. From which the first two years was basically deep depression and forcing playing and then trying and, and you know, throwing tantrums that I'm not going to do this anymore. Closing the, the, the case, putting in a corner, coming back to it, crying, trying again, still doesn't work. So the first two years wasn't really helpful in any way. And in the second two years, I started like really observing my symptoms, what is going on and started asking myself questions like, why doesn't my body want to play the flute, for example? Mm -hmm. Because uh, that, that's a very important bit, which I haven't mentioned that the condition is highly task specific. So basically there is, you can use your, your lips. It can also happen in the fingers for guitarists, pianists, but even in the feet with uh, people who use their feet like organists or people who are playing drum sets, like drum kits. Mm -hmm. um, so you can use that body part completely fine, no problem. I could speak, I could sing, I could articulate, I could do everything. I could even blow in other instruments. I could do oh, wow. everything except playing the flute. So it's highly task specific. So the second two years, I, I started like looking at my symptoms and trying to figure out what was going on, like really looking at it, which muscles were doing what. And that was the point where I figured out that there's nothing wrong in the top lip and the problem was on the side. And um, start to sort of create the therapy for myself. And were you able to do the specific lip movements independent from the flute? So could you do still this? unless you pick up the flute or was that also affected without the flute? That was interesting because I found um, that when I first tried in the first like year or so, I tried to forcefully do the movement and I, I couldn't, I struggled with it. I felt tension, I couldn't. And um, actually one of the like light bulb moments of my retraining was that um, my birthday and I had a birthday cake and I put candles on my birthday cake and I was like, oh, well, <laughs> What? <laughs> so when I wasn't thinking about it, I had a proof that my body was able to produce the movement. When I wasn't thinking about it, when I wasn't trying or focusing on what am I doing with my muscles, I just clicked the switch on in my brain saying, blow the candles, and my body did it. Mm. 
the moment oh. I try to like repeat the movement with how did I do this, immediately started having problems. Immediately. So that was one of the, the, the key pieces of my whole retraining is that if I think that I'm playing the flute or if I think that I'm trying to make the movement, the symptom kicks in. But if I manage to sever that connection between like the action and the cognitive level and just do something like this, I could do that. And I built my entire retraining on that idea, wow. basically. And how is it today for you? Well, I'm playing. So, um, so I, I suffered from the symptoms in 2010 and I officially went back to my professional career in 2014. Uh, it was nearly exactly four years between the last and the, the first concert, like solo recital. Um, I gave my very, very first concert in 2014 in the summer, um, which was just, you know, a group of friends, family, and I played a couple of duets with a friend, with, with a violinist friend. And then I did my first like serious solo recital in September. So it was nearly four years. Um, and then I kept on playing for a while and then I started talking about my condition. So um, I did this kind of special concert where my own poems were recited and I played solo pieces. So I had an actress reciting my poems and the whole thing was just basically building up a story, which is the story of my life, my dystonia, my feelings. It was just like a whole performance, a one hour long performance. And I played contemporary solo pieces and some Bach and some Debussy. Um, it's actually online. It's on a YouTube channel. It's re it's recorded. It's recorded. So we can put the link in the description yeah. later. <laughs> and then I was uh, interviewed about that concert because it's like so special, and also people like kind of noticed that I was not on the stage for four years. So a guy who runs a flute blog interviewed me uh, after the concert, and I started talking about my condition, and I started talking what happened. And first of all, that was the first light bulb moment when I we actually identified that what I had was musician's vocal dystonia. <laughs> oh, wow. So no, no doctor, nobody. I mean, I assume you went to doctors and you said it before and therapists and nobody could identify it. I was uh, diagnosed with hysteria by a neurologist in the 21st century. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yeah, I went to four or five neurologists. Um, four of which didn't even look at how I played the instrument. So I tried to explain that I have no problems only when I play the instrument. And I had my flute with, with me and only one of them actually asked me to show him the symptoms like when I'm playing. The rest like started like hitting my nail, like my knee with little hammers and then they have no idea. But I paid a lot of money. So after like five yeah. tries, I think I gave up. Um, and I heard about dystonia and I like, had this like feeling that maybe that's what I have, but most of the literature is on finger dystonia. Mm. Most of the literature is on pianists who, who, whose fingers are cramping or guitarists whose fingers, fingers are cramping. So I so somehow didn't really kind of made the link between my problem and that problem. And mm. interestingly, I even toured with a guitarist who had dystonia <laughs> way before I had my own. And I heard a lot about the condition because he was giving interviews, because he was playing, he was sort of recovering and then he played, he reached the level like he could play uh, on, on a good level. And I heard him talking about it. And yet I didn't make the connection because it's fingers, fingers, oh, fingers, wow. fingers. And 
this is something different, but it wasn't. Yeah. And so there are now obviously already in your story two people who did recover from it. So why is it seen incurable? So what's the idea? So that's just purely the medical side who says, are they ignoring that people do recover from it? Or is it really rare that people do recover? It's quite rare to completely recover. Uh, many people improve after their initial symptoms. But uh, most people, so medical professionalists uh, are experimenting with all sorts of drugs. They're also experimenting with Botox injections in the overactive muscles. So they inject Botox in the fingers and they inject Botox even in the jaw and face. And um, I think that practice is really harmful in many ways. First of all, it's the whole Botox thing. It's like driving a car and then a light comes up on your dashboard saying that you're low on gas. And instead of like stopping and like filling up gas, you just like smash the dashboard. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Because the problem is not in your muscle, it's up in your brain. So just like basically muting the reaction of the finger, the signal is still going to go from the brain to that muscle. It just yeah. won't be able to act out because the muscle is going to be paralyzed. Also, musicians really need that fine motor control in the fingers. So just imagine injecting Botox into fingers. I talked to mm. people who were not able to hold a glass of water after the injections. Um, people who had very severe problems with swallowing or eating because after receiving injections in their jaw. So that's what they are trying to do. And that's obviously not great. Mm. They also use medications which are developed for Parkinson's disease. That's also not great. Uh, it's not really helpful. It improves somewhat, like it helps improve somewhat in about one third of the population, uh, this kind of population, but it also has very severe side effects. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, those who feel some sort of improvement in the playing, those are the ones who also suffer from the, the more severe side effects. So it either works on both ways, both negative and positive, or it doesn't work at all. So that's, that's the view that we can't give you a medication, we can't do anything with you, it's incurable. And like 15, 20 years ago, they just, you were basically told to forget about playing. Oh, wow. uh, now based on actually based on the recovery of a few people who actually didn't, didn't manage to recover, based on that they started sort of behavioral therapies as well. They putting splints on fingers um, to teach the inactive fingers how to move. Like in my case, I had inactive muscles here, overactive muscles there. Obviously, you can't do it with lips, but you can do it with fingers. So if you have one overactive muscle or overactive finger, you can place a splint on it to encourage the other one to move more. So they experimenting with it, but they, they are not really um, successful with it. And I mm. think the part which is, there are two big parts which are largely ignored when it comes to, to healing the condition. One of them is that music it, the knowledge of how to play the instrument is, is needed when you want to do a therapy like that so you need to know what is the baseline movement you're trying to retrain or recover without that knowledge you have no idea second of all i think that there is a huge side to it which is psychological which links to uh, certain psychological traits learned or just innate and also links to trauma and stress responses. And that's completely ignored in the literature. It's completely ignored when it comes to treatment, whether behavioral treatment or medication or, or Botox. 
they just don't care about it and that ignorance costs many people their careers I think maybe at this point because we had a we had a conversation before this and uh, I remember that you said well this condition is a lot of shame attached often in your industry because a lot of people think it's something they do so I remember that you said people who are told this is psychological or has a psychological element often close their own doors and be like, no, 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 it has nothing to do with me. So maybe it's important to say at this point, if you watch this and you have this, it's good news that there is something you can do about it. Because if it's down to something to do with your own psychology, you have a power and it has nothing to do with it's your fault. It's not. So I mean, that's maybe one of the most important messages in the whole thing, that just because it has to do with your own psyche, it is not your fault. It's a chance. Absolutely. I absolutely do agree. And I do indeed fight many battles, not only with medical professionalists, neurologists who go like, this is a genetic disorder, the gene just like sort of clicks in your mind at some point. Um, uh, but also with sufferers, the moment I mentioned psychology, they I, I received this response, uh, this outrage response that no, it's a neurological condition. Uh, but as you say that, first of all, neurology and psychology, they are interlinked. And right now, there are a couple of medical articles out there by very, like, um, very good like neuroscientists and neurologists suggesting that it's just insane that we do these two different fields is the same organ. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we should, and also many neurological conditions have um, accompanying psychological disorders. Many psychological disorders has accompanying neurological disorders. You can't just like cut these two things in half. Second of all, as you say, that having certain psychological things that doesn't translate to that you've done something wrong, that it's your, your fault. It's not. It's not. This is uh, a result of a very complex of environmental issues, traumas, uh, your experiences in music education, how you, how you were taught to practice, to think about your own music, how you were taught um, what is quality playing, enjoyment in playing music, what does your career mean to you, like all these things play into it. Also physical stress, not sleeping, uh, nutrition, not eating well enough. Uh, so all these things, I don't say that there is no gene which could be responsible for the onset. I'm not saying that there is no, like, you, they couldn't, they can't, they probably will, will be able to, to identify certain genes which are responsible, but they are not going to be activated unless all the other pieces of puzzle are in yeah. place, so to speak. So maybe, because um, I interrupted earlier, you said you had this uh, interview and you for the first time realized that your condition that is a known condition. So how did your journey go from there? Because now we already from the interview get that you must have gone into some form of research or therapy direction. But how did your journey continue after that yeah. interview? Yeah, so, um, <laughs> um, so first of all, that was like a shocking moment. Uh, you mentioned this like shame associated with it. And then um, for the first, especially for the first couple of years, I, I didn't talk about this to anyone. I just very silently withdrawn from my concerts, from uh, my teaching. I started teaching without playing on my lessons, which was a really painful experience because I always showed everything to my students, trying to explain to my kids why I can't play. But it was just this deep shame, this deep guilt. And uh, 
of course we talked about this like the identity of a musician is very much like connected to how well we play the instrument and now i hear i couldn't play the instrument at all so in my own eyes i was absolutely worthless in a way and i was also convinced that i was the only one for some reason i it didn't even occur to me that this could happen to other people because I, I just despise myself to that level that only I can be so stupid. Only I can be so like blah, 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 blah. Mm. To actually end up in a situation like this. And still I was blaming myself. I wasn't blaming, you know, my education, my teachers, my environment, my... Nothing. It was my, it was my fault. So, first of all, learning that while this is an existing condition and it's been diagnosed in other people, it was like, ah. Oh, that's interesting. So I went home and um, and I started researching it. And the first five articles which came up was like incurable, 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 incurable. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Good that you haven't read it any sooner, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I actually worked with a, a, few, uh, um, a few people who got diagnosed and who'd been told that forget about playing the instrument, it's incurable. And that's is also a trauma. It's a very deep trauma. Mm. And then that's just an additional burden they have to overcome before they actually start to address the issue. So it's unnecessary. It's absolutely unnecessary. Yeah. Um, the other thing which happened after that interview that I started, after the interview went online, I started receiving phone calls, emails, uh, messages from musicians who themselves suffered from the condition, asking, how did you do it? What did you do? How? Like, how? And interestingly enough, the guy who did the interview also suffered from the condition. And I knew this person for 20 years and I had no idea. Wow. And there were many people in that group of people who contacted me like right after the interview went online, whom I knew. One of them was my teacher in, in my master's. Um, and many people um, who I like worked with or played with or knew through other musicians. I was like, I had no idea. Some of them were older professors, some of them were like my age or even younger people. And nobody talks about this. They all kept their silence. They they just didn't talk about this. So the way I started, like I sat down with them one by one and tried to explain what I did and how I did it. And trying to translate it to their specific condition because they're all different, all... For every single person, different set of muscles are affected. So in my case, this was inactive, this was overly active. But for some people, some corner of the mouth comes up. Some people, the entire jaw tenses up. For some people, three fingers do this. Some people can't even lift the pinky. Some, it's different for every single person. I even encounter people who have it in the shoulders, like bowing. Oh, wow. Uh, or trombone playing. You have to have a very flexible movement here and then the shoulder just do weird things in the neck so it, it's been like first year or so I, I try to like translate my experiences to their specific condition mm -hmm. and uh, from there very slowly but very naturally a sort of like coaching practice start to grow so the more people turned up the more people I talked to I started developing better ideas when I, I first went through the entire retraining with someone, 
it was a drum player uh, who's actually not a classical drum player, it was like a metal <laughs> drum player. I started like really writing down all the exercises because we put together the exercises we did because he knew how to play the drums, I knew how to overcome the condition. And then the two, like we just like puzzled it together. Like this is what I did with my lips. Like maybe we should translate this like this. And then we worked together. And I started creating specific exercises for each instrument. And that's why I started taking it seriously and like really start to do like, okay, this is a coaching business now. But it was mm -hmm. like a slow uh, development of one, two years, three years after uh, I, I actually uh, got better or started playing again. And that's what you then decided why you went to London to do your PA, to do your another master's degree and then your PhD, was it? <laughs> yeah, so uh, what I found, because I started like reading about it, um, and what I found is um, there's tons of information online which is just not accurate. There are tons of so-called gurus who would offer you a solution for tons of money, but there is no evidence. Um, and some of them manage to get some people to improve or even few people to recover, but they always stay that their way is the only way. Um, medical professionalists are locked in their little science castle and they refuse to see evidence which is not proven in their way. Um, refuse to talk to musicians, people, they are the patients, I'm the doctor, they are not going to mm. tell me. Um, and I really wanted to link the two things. First of all, seeing what works, what doesn't work in personal coaching. Making sure that my teaching, whatever I teach, whatever I, I coach is, is working. And also, I always start every single session with this disclaimer that I'm not saying that this is the only way. Please feel free to be flexible, to experiment with this, add other ideas from other um, you know, people's um, story or coaching or ideas from this. It's, it's, a, it's a personal, very personal journey. I'm just going to give whatever I can. If it's helpful for you, great. If you find something else is helpful on the top, go for it. Um, and also, I really want to build this bridge between science and actual experience, which was very important for me. And being a musician, I found that being a musician, I knocked on doors and they remained closed. So I really felt that I needed to have some sort of education in a more scientific um, um, field rather than just, just being a musician. Because I was dismissed by many uh, just because like, you're only a musician, how would you know? And I've been told many times that if you recovered, that it was on Estonia in the first place. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, there are many people, like, if it, it's incurable, so if you, if you recovered, you didn't have it. So maybe that's also a really important lesson because I also experienced loads of misdiagnosis in my in my history of like trying to recover. So probably also for anyone watching this or any of these channels, I think we have a good compass or instinct in ourselves what we need to recover if we actually dare to listen to it. And just because like as in your case, five neurologists say this is bullshit and you have nothing, it doesn't mean that that's true. I think that's also a really important lesson for everyone suffering from any form of condition where the medical world um, can't really answer, answer the questions. I think that's really fascinating and sad because it shouldn't be that way.
Absolutely. And also, like, it's the nature of scientific inquiry that it needs to have boxes. It needs to have evidence. It's, it needs to be very strict. So right now, there are a couple of researchers who start saying that, okay, so it's not like one condition, like there are different subtypes just to, in order to be able to explain that some people recover, some don't. Um, but what I usually say to my clients, especially if they haven't been diagnosed, that I have this weird kind of twitch or tremor in my finger and I don't know if it's dystonia or not. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we call it. It's a problem. It stops you yeah. from playing. <laughs> and there are certain things which might contribute to this problem. We're going to look at those things, which includes posture, breathing, the general like overexcitement of the nervous system, being super stressed, sleep, nutrition. And then we're going to do specific exercises on the instrument. And mm. if it goes away, fine. It doesn't matter if it was dystonia or if it wasn't dystonia. This, this is one viewpoint. The other viewpoint, there are very, very few conditions in the world which very specifically stops you from playing the instrument by like sabotaging the fine motor movement. What else could it be? Yeah. What else could it be if it's not specific? If it's not that specific, you can go ahead and check yourself like if you have Parkinson's or any other like serious neurological disorder. But if you're fine and you can do everything with your body except playing the instrument, what is it then if it's not vocal dystonia? Yeah. So there's the there's the other thing. But uh, name like when I'm come to my like coaching mind, it doesn't matter. I only yeah. have to be very careful what I call things when I'm in my scientific box. And yeah, uh, yeah so this this kind of, there is a, a differentiation between how we deal with the thing when I'm I'm coaching people personally mm -hmm. based on my own experiences it's more flexible and when i'm doing scientific research um and then i have to be very strict because i have to follow a set of rules yeah so to just wrap up your story so you are still in your phd what are you doing right now and what's your goal with it so um i in my second year now uh i'm hopefully going to submit in a year and a half or two and uh <laughs> So basically the topic of my PhD is just like the non-organic factors in, in the onset and treatment of musicians' vocal dystonia. So looking at how we can uh, look at the experience of musicians, um, psychological factors, um, acknowledge the role of environmental factors, music education, that sort of thing. And how can we use that knowledge to improve treatment? And then after that, I'm, I haven't really decided yet completely. Uh, it's going to definitely going to be some sort of mixture of my own playing and performance because I didn't really do a lot of performances. I did try in London. So when I entered my master's in London, I went on and did um, a couple of gigs with orchestras. Uh, I played um, in like hobby projects uh, with my classmates at the Royal College of Music. That's what I like, but I did my degree. Um, but after like three, four months, I was just so exhausted because I was trying to do a master in a language which I, I, I spoke, but I never used it in an academic way before. I never did academic writing before. I also tried to figure out how I'm going to get a PhD position for next year. And I tried to practice and write all the assignments and like get up, take everything in plus culture shock. 
So it was it was too much. It was too much. It sounds a lot. <laughs> so uh, I decided when I entered my PhD that I'm just going to take it easy. I'm going to practice for my own pleasure, but I'm not going to take on gigs. I'm not going to like make a living on playing. So I really excited to go back to that after my <laughs> PhD is finished. Um, and I definitely want to uh, continue coaching people with the condition. And, and I definitely want to do research, like scientific research. Yeah. So it's going to be a mixture of that three. How exactly? I have no idea yet. But, uh, and I guess that in, in the future, it's always going to be like a flexible construct in my life. It's always going yeah. to be, be time periods when um, I play more, research less, I coach more, I play less. So these three pillars is going to be there for sure. Uh, and we will see how I can, you know, just juggle my time and energy between them. <laughs> that sounds super exciting. <laughs> then there's one part I would like to talk to you about because you keep mentioning your music education. So do you want to share a bit about like what you think, where does this dystonia start? Because I also read on your website and from the conversation previously that you said it started it probably in your music education. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about what you found so far? Or Absolutely. So it's um, it's one of those things which really like links my experience to my research because uh, this thing I not only experienced myself but I also found in all fifteen of my uh, my participants in my interview study, my first interview study, and nearly in all participants in my second interview study where I talked to practitioners who treat the condition. And they were in touch with over thousands and thousands of sufferers. So it's like a very broad sample. So basically, uh, what happened with me, I was a very quick, very talented kid. I learned very, very quickly. Um, I, um, I did very advanced materials very early on and was super excited. I was like hyped to play. Um, and I entered a like a special uh, type of music education which we have in Hungary, which is like a specialized high school in music with a focus on instrumental playing. And I had an absolutely awful teacher, like an absolutely awful teacher. She was bullying me. She was emotionally abusive. Nothing was good enough. She was a perfectionist, but to a level where she would prescribe to me how to play every single note. And I spent like flute lessons with playing one or two notes for 45 minutes because she didn't like them. So I would start the piece and I was like, nah, it's too low, it's too high, it's not enough vibrato on it. There is like the, it's like the, how you're standing, you do this, you do that. Um, there were specific techniques on the flute. She just told me after a year of teaching that you're physically incapable of doing that. Um, and she had this style when she would, even when she would like tell you terrible, terrible things, she would just laugh in your face. And by the time I reached like a third and fourth year, I like exited every single flute lesson crying. So my mom knew when my flute lesson was and I went to the bathroom and I would cry on the phone for half an hour. And then I would pick myself up and I go practice. Um, I was accused of not practicing enough. I spent most of my waking hours practicing, yet I played much worse than I played before. So that was my experience. And then I had other like not great experiences with other teachers, um, abusive. And um, but this was basically the baseline because between 14 and 18, that's when I entered my professional education. 
And it was not only that she absolutely crushed my soul, but she also taught me how to talk to myself, how to practice, how to view my own practice, how to view my own talent, my own expression. And she taught me that it wasn't worth anything. She taught me that no matter how hard I tried, I could never be there. I was never good enough. And then that sort of mindset, that sort of cognition, I carried on in my future career. So even though she wasn't present after a while, I carried her with me in my mind and I, I treated myself the same way. I never practiced enough. I always beat myself up. So there was this constant anxiety, stress and emotional pain in connection with the flute. And I loved it. I wanted to. That was my life. That was my identity. But there's this ongoing pain with everything I did. Um, just like one example, there was like one piece. And she, she told me that you will never be able to play that piece. And uh, I went to, uh, to college. And the teacher said like, oh, we need to like find you some repertoire. What if you play this one? And he handed me over that piece. And I had a, like a mini panic attack on the spot. Like, I can't possibly play this. I can't, I can't. And then I, 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 at the end, I started practicing it. Turned out I could. I did play it and I did play it very well. Um, and what I found with, with many of my participants as well, that they have very similar experiences. So they turn up being the talented, little, enthusiastic little nuggets as they are. And they have one teacher who's like highly perfectionistic, which in itself is not a problem if you like um, strive to be better, but mm. perfectionistic in a very negative way, beating the students up, beating them up for not being able to play or sight read something perfectly. You're not allowed to make a mistake. You're not allowed to experiment. And most of all, you're not allowed to find your own voice. You have to play mm. everything in this very prescribed manner. And then if you, if you do something differently, even if it's not a mistake, you're going to like be beaten up for it. In some cases, even physically. Oh, wow. Um, I talked to one of my, my clients I actually worked with a couple of years ago. It was a guitar player. And then he had a, an accomplished technique. And then um, he had got a new teacher and the teacher thought that he was lifting the fingers too much from the fretting board when he was playing. And he would sit next to him watching his hand and he would have a newspaper in his hand. And whenever he lifted the finger too much, he would hit him in the head with a newspaper. Interestingly, the guy ended up with focal dystonia two months later. Wow. Because, you know, Pavlov and the Pavlov effect, yeah. you associate playing with intense anxiety and emotional pain all the time. And after a while... What I said earlier that I started asking myself the question why my body doesn't want to play the flute. That's why. Because it's pain. It's massive, mm. intense pain and anxiety and stress. And it's it was actually, it was very hard for me to admit it. But at, 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 at some level, it was a relief not to be able to play. Yeah. Because I escaped all that. Wow. Um, so music education, yes, it, it plays a huge role, a huge role in, in developing the condition. And even if they, you had a terrible teacher of three, four years, if it happens in a very like vulnerable, like time period, when you're a teenager or young adult, you learn how to, how to treat yourself yeah. and you continue doing it. And even if you have a very supportive and kind teacher, they, they can't completely turn it around. 
because it's very like in 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 your psyche like sitting there deeply um so it's um it's it's a huge problem it's a huge problem and there is this history of abusive teachers we know a lot about you know classical dance teachers and ballet teachers how abusive they mm. can get and like if you're not on the top there are even movies made about the black swan for example yeah um made about this and i read articles about this like this toxic uh, culture in, in dance education but in some places there is a very toxic culture in music education as well and it yeah. really wants to like <laughs> when people come to me it's like oh you're a professional musician oh you're so lucky you do what you love for a living and I could just <laughs> you have no idea what I went through you know yeah. this kind of um, idea but yeah it's there is a very toxic environment and I'm deeply convinced that it really contributes to the to the onset of the condition to development of the condition later on yeah makes sense so how is your inner voice with yourself now so i assume you repracticed exactly that element of how you talk to yourself <laughs> it's a challenge to this day actually it's a challenge oh. to this day so during that year when i was doing my masters in london and still trying to play and still trying to perform and also you're in this environment you're the royal college of music Mm -hmm. But I was doing a science degree, but I was a musician and everyone around me just practiced and practiced and practiced. And they were in that prime period when you practice seven, eight hours a day and they were giving these amazing performances. And like, I want to be that, I, like, you know, just like long to be that. That's your word. That's your, your identity, but you're there on a science degree. So you have tons to do. Uh, it was very hard for not beating myself up, for not being able to perform on that level, which I thought I should be able to perform or not practice mm. or not doing that thing just really like set that straight in my mind that this is not what you're here for and it was really yeah. hard and um and like making that decision that i'm not doing any paid gigs uh during my phd or any like not not even just paid just i'm not going to to take on concert paid or not mm. during my phd it was a really hard decision to make and even to this day and go and stop practicing. And like, sometimes I don't practice for two, three days because I was just busy with PhD stuff. And I, I start playing. It's like, oh my God, this is bullshit. How does it sound? And like, oops, chill, take a big breath. Look at reality. Go, you haven't practiced for three days. What do you expect? Just play something you enjoy, lovely melody. Like sight read something, but it's it just you have to like observe, notice it, and just like cut it right, yeah, right there, because it's very easy to spiral down and like do this, yeah. do this. Oh. Um, yeah, I guess musicians are, are perfectionists by nature, especially classical musicians, because we have everything prescribed to us. Mm. You have the music, you have to play the exact notes in the exact same dynamic and in the exact same rhythm. And if you make a mistake, everyone is going to hear it because even people who are not trained in music, classical music, will be able to hear if you like put the wrong note in the Mozart. Mm. Because it's such a structure. If you can like, if there is a, a a beautiful like structure, and then there is one bit which is distorted in it, you are able to spot it even if you're not an architect or not a sculptor. You see it's wrong, somehow. Same with music. If you play like classical pieces, everyone's like, hey, that was strange. If that's even true, like maybe my uh, audience wouldn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the, the whole, like the nature of, of 
of classical music in itself puts a lot of pressure on people. So we probably yeah. should stop putting extra pressure on the top of that. Sounds good. <laughs> Before we finish this wonderful episode, is there anything else you want to say? You want to tell people what they should do, like the first emergency tip if they get it? Anything we haven't talked about? Um, if you think you have musicians for dystonia, first of all, do a thorough research online. Read everything you can, because there are tons of very useful materials up there, including my website. But I'm not only saying that that's the only source of information. If you're, you've been diagnosed and your neurologist told you that it's not curable, please don't believe that. Um, and it's possible to recover. It's a long journey, and it takes a lot of self-exploration and lots of changes probably, but it is possible. Um, for people out there who don't have musicians for dystonia, but our musicians are not musicians, I just probably have like one message, just like, enjoy making music. Even if you're an amateur, if you're a professional, because this is what we most of the time forget, when it's just like, I need to get that thing right, I need to have this concerto by heart. It has nothing to do with like this joyous atmosphere, this, this, just, just try to enjoy it, just try to be it, immerse your, yourself in it. Uh, because music is, is, is a miracle, it's fantastic, it's, um, it's a life source. Uh, so don't allow yourself to be cut from your life source. Uh, listen to it, play it, and enjoy it, I guess. That's, that's the most important thing. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for the, for the interview and you know, asking me such marvelous questions. <laughs>